0: We have been discussing King David, and I kind of had a little bit of a pause, not really, it was just one on the principles that we saw in King David, but I want to go on a little bit now. So just to review where we're at, King David had been on the run forever, we see all his exploits, and we ended King David becoming King of Judah, and then becoming King of Israel. Now after he became King of Israel, we just thought that all his problems would go away, but as soon as he became King of Israel, the Philistines declared war against him. And we saw principles there that, you know what, it's like, we just, if we if we think that something's going to change our lives, if we think that getting married or or having a new relationship or, or getting a new job is going to change our lives, you know what, it might not change anything. What's going to change your life is going from glory unto glory in Jesus Christ. That's it. And so he becomes king of Israel. The Philistines declare war against Israel. He gets the leading of the Holy Ghost, to, whether, what to do, and he goes in and they go into war and he defeats them. And so he's having a few troubles with his generals and different things, but now he has become king of Judah and king of Israel. Now, as soon as he becomes king of Israel, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And so we're going to go through Samuel 6 today, Second Samuel chapter 6 today, and we're going to look at two incidents that happen as soon as he becomes king about bringing the Ark of the Covenant back in. And we're going to look at these two incidents that look very different, but in my eyes, they look very much the same. And the same to me, it looks like we are dealing with just two incidents of dealing with God's presence versus the flesh. God's presence versus the flesh. God's kingdom versus the world's kingdom and how people react to it. So we're going to open up 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we're going to read 10 verses right now that says this. Again, David gathered... All the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahel, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanied by the ark of God. And the hail went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on string instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, And God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the Ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the Ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So here we see David wanting to bring the Ark of the Covenant Back to Israel. And so, for those of you who don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, I'm sure some of you have, have heard of it, even from Raiders of the Lost Ark. All those series was them trying to find the Ark. It's, it's one of those things that people still can't find to this day. Some people think they know where it is, some people say they don't know where it is. But to this day, the Ark of the Covenant has not surfaced since the fall of the Temple. But at this time, what they would do is they would move the Ark of the Covenant. And what it is, it, is there was, most, it was their most sacred artifact. And it was a chest made of wood, covered in gold. Cherubim made of gold on top of it. But what it represented was the presence of God. It represented the presence of God. It meant that the presence of God was with the people of Israel. And they would put it in the temple when the temple was made in the Holy of Holies. And that's where the priests would go in once a year to do atonement for the sins of Israel before Jesus. It was foreseeing our forgiveness, but would atone once a year. And the priest would go there in the presence of God and give a sacrifice there. God would come down to the mercy seat, accept the sacrifice, and pass over the sins of Israel. So everywhere the temple went, the Ark of the Covenant would go. And so it needed to be with the people of Israel because it symbolized the presence of God. And really, God often wouldn't come unless that was in place. It had to do with foreshadowing what we're seeing today. So that was so important. Nothing was more important to the children of Israel than making sure that was in place. A symbol of faith of God's presence. And so it looks similar to this. This is actually from the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what, from the the scripture, that's what most people think it might look like. Very similar to that. And so they would take that from place to place as the temple moved. And so once King David became king of Israel, he wanted to make sure that God was back in the presence. And so they went and they put it on a cart and as the oxen were pulling it, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah put out his hand to make sure that the ark didn't fall. And God was angry with that action and struck Uzzah dead right there on the spot. Now, we look at that and like David did. David was angry that this had taken place. Like, this is one of my good men. He's doing you a favor, God. We're trying to get you back in the presence of God. And David was mad that this situation took place. But what we need to understand is that the children of Israel were told by God to move the ark in a specific way. And what they were to do is the priests were to put them on the shoulder of men with poles and walk with the ark on their shoulders through ground, through tough ground. And after Philistines went to war at one time and beat Israel, they took the ark. And so the Philistines started to move the ark on a cart. And nothing happened to them while it moved on a cart. But they weren't told, they were the enemies of God. They weren't told how to move the ark. And so the ark shows up on a cart and David just continues to do with what the heathens do and starts to move the ark on a cart. Well, the children of Israel were never told to move the ark on a cart. They were told to reverence that thing. And part of reverencing that thing was putting it on poles and putting it on people's shoulders, carrying it. And then after a certain amount of time, they would stop. They were told exactly how to carry it. And so it wasn't just like God said, don't touch me, bang, you're dead. He said, this is how I want the ark Carried. This is what I want you to do. He laid it out. Everybody knew what was supposed to be done. And David just moved it on the ark. And they just put it on oxen. And so it looks like people, you know, are scared because they don't understand how God's going to move. But this scripture says they should have known exactly how God was going to move. He told the children of Israel not to move the ark that way, not to deal with it that way, to reverence his presence and to do so. You did it this way. And they were acting like the Philistines. Instead of the children of Israel. And that's why Huza got struck dead. It may have seemed noble, but it was a fleshly reaction to stop that thing. It was a fleshly reaction against God's instructions. And so I pause there and I think, how many fleshly reactions do I have in one day against God's instructions? Against how God wants me to act, against how God wants us to live, how God wants us to do things, how God wants us to deal with our money, how God wants us to deal with our life, how God wants us to deal with people. How many fleshly reactions, how God wants us not to worry. How many fleshly reactions do I have against God's instructions? And I look at this and I just say, this boils down to, this incident boils down to God's ways versus our fleshly ways. It's a warning. Now, thank God God doesn't strike us dead now because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But it doesn't mean we're any less disobedient. And it doesn't mean it's any less of a warning in our lives. And it comes down to God's ways versus our ways. You know, a lot of times I think we walk through our lives like we're helping God, you know? We pray like we're helping God, you know? Like we're almost giving Him instruction. We pray, or we tell him how he's going to come into our life. Lord, I'm going to do this, and I ask that you bless it. I'm going to marry this person, and I ask that you bless it. I'm going to go into this business, and I ask you to bless it. We tell God what to do in our business, and we're backwards. That's a fleshly reaction. What is our first reaction should be? Lord, what do you want me to do? You are the hope. You are my calling. You are my inheritance. What do you want me to do? And the Bible's full of what he wants us to do and how he wants us to act and how he wants us to be. And we just oftentimes think that we can do whatever we want and then we're going to pray him into our situation. No, the whole goal in life is to flow with God. The whole goal in life is to be like in a river flowing with God and flowing with his spirit in what he wants us to do. What do you mind? Most of you guys know Steve came to visit me yesterday and just chatted at Pumpkin Patch. as Soon as he shows up, he sees a lady there that he was at her place on Saturday doing a garage door and a friend of a friend's, and that's why they called him to do the garage door. But he's been in their life and he's praying for them and, and there's trouble in the home and he's wanting to see them come to Christ. And Steve's such an evangelist and just wanting to see them come to Christ. And the first thing that happens when he shows up is he sees that lady. And when he's done, he just looks at me and goes, What is she doing here? And we laughed and we continued to to talk. And the lady, you know, continued to talk and saying how her kids were at camp. And they were wondering who the person was. I never did find Stacy that day, but wondering who the person was who shares these stories after lunch hour. These stories. And Steve and I laughed afterwards. These stories. Oh, you mean these good stories. Oh, you mean these stories that are news. The good news. Those stories. You mean the gospel. And so he just... Threw his arms up to me like this, and he's like, Here I am thinking, I'm the one that God sends into this situation, and God is chasing them down over here at camp through their kids, next generations coming to Christ, all this stuff's happening. And we just laughed, and we're like, We get so arrogant, and we think we're just the ones, and we're the ones praying, and our prayers is what broke that person through. And it's so arrogant. And we need to realize that listen we need to make sure that we love all our brothers and sisters because the very person you might be pushing away is the very person who might deliver you from the situation you're about to get into. And we're so careless that we follow fleshly, devilish, demonic, evil things and do things that may hinder our future. God's ways are our ways. And so we just had a good laugh, and it was like, you know what? We shouldn't be putting down any church, any people, any situation, any ministry. We just should be embracing everything, because if we truly are flowing in the gift of God, we're going to see that stuff happen every everywhere. And if we think we're the only ones to the party, that is so arrogant, right? God is so much bigger than our puny little prayers that we pray most of the time. Even when we think we're doing good, He's bigger than that. And so we don't want God to follow us. I'm a terrible leader in that regard. I'm, I, I was not designed to lead God. God always was and designed me to be led by him. Does that make sense? We need to be led by God. And the more times we fleshly react against that leading, the more time we have ooze deaths all around us and just that ooze of death represents to me something that dies that God wants to bless. Amen. Amen that business, that person, that whatever it may be, that, that relationship. So that's the first lesson, first thing that happens on this trip back to Israel. Now we're going to go to the second incident. There's actually kind of a third incident in here. But. So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. I love this. Now it was told to King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces. Now they're on the shoulders that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. So here's my middle section that happens here before the second incident. So David's got a dilemma now. He's like, God, I'm mad at you. You struck that guy down. And then all of a sudden he gets word. Oh, by the way, Obed, Edom, and all his house is absolutely flourishing, is being blessed. Their socks are being blessed off. Why? Because the presence of the Lord is there. And where the presence of the Lord is, there's freedom. And where the presence of the Lord is, there's prosperity. And where the presence of the Lord is, there's healing. Where the presence of the Lord is, there's victory. And so David hears this and he's like, I need that ark back up here. It's my job to have it in the house of Israel so that my people can be blessed. And so he has this dilemma And it doesn't say what happens in this dilemma, but we know he went back to the priest or he went back to the book or he went back to the scrolls and he figured out how to get this ark back. Because it is always better with the presence of the Lord in our lives. And we cannot be fulfilled without his presence. And so David knew that him and his people would not be fulfilled without the presence of God. He figured out how to do it, went back, put the ark back on the shoulders, came, did what he was supposed to do, and the ark ends up back. And my note here is just, it is always worth figuring out how to do it God's way. Always. Always. You've had trouble in your life? You haven't been able to figure out God in some of these situations and you're even mad at God in some of these situations? It is always worth figuring out how to do it God's way. And we get so scared stubborn, and we think that we can push even harder with our own will, and we think we can even get madder, and we can tell God that, no, I can act this way, and this person is this way, and so I get to be mean to that person, or I get to uh, uh, whatever. I don't get to give here. I don't need to be generous here, or this or that, and you can get stubborn all you want, but I'm telling you something. If you act like that in life, your neighbor's going to get blessed down the road who's doing what God wants to do, and hopefully one day we get jealous enough of somebody else's peace, of somebody else's freedom, of somebody else's victory, to where we go back and figure out how to do it God's way. Because it's always worth going back and figuring out how to do it God's way. It's worth the peace in our lives, and it's worth the blessing of God in our lives. So David goes back, gets the Ark of the Covenant, and we're getting to the second scenario that happens here now. Now, as the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the Ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle, and David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord, and when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed everywhere to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself today in the eyes of maids, of his servants, as one of those base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for my maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So these look like fairly separate incidences, but to me, they're the same. Both people affected by the presence of God in a different way. And here we see the ultimate situation that happened for Michael. She became barren for the rest of her life. And I stopped and I go, Lord, here we are again. Like the other incident, I do not want to be barren. I do not want to be unfulfilled. I do not want to be not blessed. I do not want that. And so David had removed his kingly garments and danced with all his might before the Lord with all the people. Then he gave to all the people. And I pause there and I have to ask, why was his wife so angry? Why was his wife so angry? That's the question I ask in these stories. I stop there and I go, she ended up barren. Her anger got her into trouble Why was she so angry? What bothered her? What bothered her so much that she ended up being barren for the rest of her life? And I look at this, and here are some of my thoughts. She was Saul's daughter, brought up in a kingdom. She was now David's wife, wife of the king. And he was dancing with all the normal people. Was that beneath her? Was she special because she was the king's wife? Was she so special in the eyes of God that she couldn't believe her husband, the king would be dancing and hanging out and taking his kingly robes off to make himself like the people? Was that beneath him? And I look at this and I just go, this is the heart of God here again. This is God's kingdom versus our fleshly thoughts. And I ask, is anyone beneath us? Is anyone beneath us? That's the question we have to ask ourselves because we have a whole sphere of people around us that God wants us to reach. And is that some of our problem? Do we actually look at people as lower than ourselves? Do we look at people as less than ourselves? Is there some people we won't hang around because they're not as cool or don't have the money that we have or, or, or they're a little awkward or a or, or little messy or don't have the same clothes or whatever it may be? Is there people below us? Because in the kingdom of God, there's not. Not as far as equality goes. Now he has different positions and he has different places of honor. And we see that all throughout the scripture, but over and over and over again, he tells those who do have honor, they had better step off the table because the greatest in the kingdom of God is the greatest servant. How low are we willing to go to pick somebody else up is the identifier of the greatest person in the kingdom of God. There's lots of things that'll stop us from doing that. There's lots. But I love this. The fact that she was barren. You know what that tells me? If that's how you live your life, trying to chase this kind of stuff and, and live your life like that and not chase what God wants, you're going to be chasing stuff that never satisfies. That the only thing that will satisfy is the will of God. And the closer we get to Jesus, I say this all the time when I see it in the scripture, the closer people get to Jesus, he, what is he telling them to do right away? Get out there and serve, get out there and touch lives get out there, be with my people and feed my sheep and wash people's feet. And as low as you can get, is as great as you will be in the kingdom of God. I know I've shared this story a lot over the years, but I walk and pray to this piece of property for years and years and years. And one day it was sunny out and I just went in my bare feet and walked this piece of property. It's just got something to do with my personal future and vision. And, and anyways, I'd come home from a meeting after that, I'd walked this, this, actually, I'd walked this, this thing and I was praying and I, before I went in my truck to go to a meeting, I looked down and my feet were absolutely filthy and I couldn't get all the dust off them. So I just put my socks on over the dirt. And I went to my meeting and, and I got home late that night and my boy was young and he was, he was sleeping in his bed and I went into his bed and rubbed his back and prayed with him and, and just a little gaffer at the time and crawled up in with him and I looked down and I saw that Jonathan hadn't had a bath or shower before he went to bed and his feet were absolutely filthy. And so I reached down and took my socks off. And I put my dirty feet beside his dirty feet. And the Lord spoke to me so heavily. That was me and my boy. Dirty feet, dirty feet. And he was like, that's me and you. That he stepped off that throne of glory to stick his feet in the dirt. He didn't make us work our way up into the kingdom of God. He stooped below us, washed our feet, and picked us up with him into the heavenlies. And if Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the son of God, would do that, how dare us not stoop? and pick everybody up around us unless we want to be barren in life. Is there anyone not good enough to be with God? Is there anyone around us that we shouldn't be good to? And it comes back to the thing that I've been sharing for weeks and weeks and weeks is every time I see David's life and these situations happen, I'm always brought back to the parable of the vineyard when he asked people to work for him in the morning. He said, I'll pay you this much and they go in. And then he asked people at noon, said, will you work for me? And then he asked people later in the day, will you work for me? And at the end of the day, they all came out and he paid them all the same amount. And they thought it was a union deal because the ones who were in there first were mad that everybody got the same pay. One started at nine, one started at noon, one started later in the day, and Jesus paid them all the same. And they were mad. And we think that Jesus should say, you're right. Let me change the amounts. But he said to them, Why? You look at me with an evil eye because I am good. And it was kingdom versus flesh. We look and we say, those people at nine o'clock got robbed. But Jesus looks at the one at three and says they got blessed. It's all how we view things. Nine o'clock got robbed. No, he says three o'clock got blessed. You agreed in the scripture, he said, to work for that amount at nine. Nine. Is it not my right, he says, to pay the same, at three, the same amount? You're looking at being robbed, and I'm looking at that one just being blessed, he says. He says, why do you look at me with evil eye? Because I am good. Man, we got to watch that in life, because we got one way of looking at things in the flesh, and then there's one way of looking at things in the kingdom. And it's so hard for us sometimes to look at somebody else who started at three o'clock and go, I'm so glad you're blessed, even if I didn't get the same blessing as you. Because the greatest blessing in the world is not what the person got, the denarii. The greatest blessing in the world is being at a right heart so that you can be happy for someone like that and even be a part of raising that person up. Other than that, we're barren. We're dead oozes on the side of the road. Father, in the name of Jesus, I stand before you open-hearted. Help us to see with your eyes. Help us, Lord, to get away from our fleshly reactions and think that we can stabilize you. Help us, Lord, to view things, not like Michael. It was a shame that her husband was with certain people, but that we would be the one running out of the house to help David bless the people. We're living in crazy times, Lord, and there's no better time now to be the greatest servants on this earth. Amen.